Praise the Lord. That's good news. Go ahead and have a seat. And um, we're going to rock on here this morning um, in an attempt to work our way down through something we've been working, trying to work towards for three weeks now. Uh, but before I jump in, I want to thank you, those of you who have been praying. Have you been praying for Ukraine? You've been praying for Russia? You've been praying for the situation out there? What a great night we had here Friday night, spending some time in, the, in, in prayer, in worship, but in prayer, and actually asking the Lord to give Vladimir Putin a Damascus experience, a Damascus Road Pauline experience where the Lord would just strike him in a vision to see what he is doing and the evil that he is pouring out on the world and save him. Do you think the Lord can do that? Yes. You know, we, he can do anything he wants to do. And um, he is working because of your prayers. And this, this, these are some reports that are coming out of Ukraine right now. One pastor, Pastor Igor from Lviv, writes this. Please tell your people thank you for praying. And because of their prayers, God is really fighting our battles. The rockets are disappearing into the air without reaching our homes, and no one where, knows where they're going. Coincidence, right? Um, enemy tanks are mysteriously running out of fuel. Russian troops, this is the one that got me, Russian troops are getting lost. And they're asking the locals for directions. That's definitely God, he says, because we are dealing with the second strongest army in the world. And this, as of this morning, Kiev and other major cities are still free, and so are we. It's reported that Ukrainian believers are witnessing to Russian soldiers right now, uh, many of whom are as young as 17 years old and don't even know why they're fighting. Um, the pastors in Ukraine are actually praising the church right now for their resolve to stay in the country and to be a beacon of light in the midst of the darkness and share Jesus, shine light out into the darkness. That's the church of Jesus Christ. It's what the church does in times of trouble. So keep on praying, you guys. Remember, when we pray in the physical, we release something in the spiritual, and God, the Holy Spirit, prays on our behalf and in the will of the Father for us. And so God is doing mighty things there, and he's encouraging the church through your prayers. Don't stop and support what's going on and support our brothers and sisters in any way that you can. All right, I'm already nine minutes behind. Or here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, at the beginning of this, um, it's going to feel academic, and then it's going to turn practical, okay? And it's going to be more inspirational as we go down through it. At least that's the goal. So hang with me in the beginning, okay? Take another extra couple of sips of coffee, and here we go. As we are talking about the rapture of the church, and we're attempting to answer this question, when will the rapture of the church happen? Now, as I said to you before, there is little debate among evangelicals that Jesus Christ is returning in a form of a rapture to take his church home to be with him, to rescue, you might say, to rescue his bride, the church, from the earth. 
Jesus is coming back to rescue his bride. The debate is in when is it happening and the timing of that as it relates to in relationship to the seven-year tribulation period that is clearly stated is going to happen and then Jesus is going to return. But before we jump into this discussion, I wanna remind you of something because I already have a bunch of people on opposite ends of this spectrum of what I am explaining to me how wrong I am. I get that, okay, it's okay, but I want you to remember this. Let this be the thing that covers all of us. Ephesians 4, one to three says this. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received in Jesus Christ. How do you live that? Here's how, Paul says, by being completely humble and gentle. Be patient. And bear with one another in love, and here's the key, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I laid this out to you a couple of weeks back when, just, when talking about some of these views, where I said that there's major doctrines and there are minor doctrines. And what I learned um, from all my life, I've heard this, in the essentials, we choose unity. In the major doctrines, we choose unity. In the non-essentials, the minor doctrines, we have liberty. We can agree to disagree, but in all things, charity. In all things, love. And we need to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This doctrine, this teaching on the rapture does not have to divide us ever. Okay, I'm gonna say that one more time. You with me? All right, good. Let me give you the five reasons why I hold and this church has traditionally held to a pre-tribulational rapture. You ready? Say yes. Yes. All right, here we go. The number one, the first thing is this. It's because of our literal approach to biblical interpretation. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter three, verse 10. This revelation um, contains a clear, literal promise to the church. Now, when approaching our study of the scriptures, we take passages at face value. That's how we approach the scriptures. That's called literal interpretation of the word of God. So in other words, we can assume that it says what it means and means what it says. Now, there are some passages that are clouded. There are some passages that are hard to understand because they're written symbolically. But we have to interpret those symbolic passages not in light of our opinion on the symbolism. We interpret those against those literal, clear teaching passages of the Bible that make complete sense. I learned this in Bible college. I have it on the screen with you. When when we're learning how to study the scriptures, this is what they taught us. When the plain or literal sense of scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense, or you might end up with Nonsense. In other words, don't count on your ability to think, hey, I understand this. You have to let the scripture teach you how to understand it. So look at Revelation 3.10, okay? Revelation 3.10 is a promise to the church when he says, Jesus, because you have kept my word without patient, with, about patient, let me start over. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. 
He's speaking about that trial, that our trial is a time when God will pour out his wrath upon the earth. And he's saying, I am going to keep you from that. We believe that this promise not only prevents believers from experiencing the unique suffering of the tribulation period, but also removes the church, removes us altogether from that hour of trial. He he rescues us that is described in Revelation 3.10. I believe that the church will be rescued and removed before this tribulation trial fires up. Now hear this, when studying the Bible, we always ask, what is the normal or the plain understanding of the passage in its original context. Like I said earlier, where there is symbolic language, we seek to understand the symbolism through the literal interpretations of other end-time prophecy passages that are clearly interpretable. That's called letting the scripture interpret the scripture. That is super vital, you guys, when you're studying the Bible on any topic. By cross-referencing and doing some Bible study, you can get the full picture of the symbolic passages, especially around, there's a lot of symbolism, a lot of symbolic language, especially in the Old Testament prophetic passages. And so the scripture in the New Testament and other passages that are clearly, um, that are clear in their understanding, we can use to interpret the symbolic. Here's a freebie for you. This is you approach the scripture and you look at the whole of scripture. When you approach the book of Revelation, the name church or the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, is mentioned 20 times in Revelation. 19 times you see the church mentioned in chapters one to three of Revelation. You only see it once in chapter 22 and never mentioned in chapter six through 19 which are describing the tribulation period where God is pouring out all of the judgments onto the earth and onto mankind. Interesting. You see the church in Revelations 1 through 3. You don't see the church again until you see us come back with Jesus in chapter 19. Why is that? It's because we're not there. We're in heaven with Jesus, and in chapter 19, the scripture describes us of revelation that we're going to come back with him when he returns to earth. We're going to come back with him, robed in white robes of righteousness, riding on white horses. And we actually believe that's a literal interpretation of the passage. It's not symbolic language. There's nothing that indicates that there's anything symbolic about the fact that we're going to be in white robes. Jesus is riding on a white horse, and we're coming back with him on white horses. (laughs) One of our little girls um, last week, oh, she's sitting right there. She says to her mom and dad later, do you think we get to keep them? Hey, we all might own white horses in the millennial kingdom. There's gonna be animals in the millennial kingdom. I don't know, I'm just, yes, you get to keep your horse. (laughs) Here's another reason we hold to a pre-tribulational rapture, and it is our view of church history. Our view of church history. Early theologians in our church history, so the beginning of the church, and many since, with the exception of the dark ages, have held to 
a pre-tribulational rapture and a pre-tribulational teaching. You can find writings from the early church fathers back in the second, third, and fourth century um, like this one I'm gonna show you from Victorinus of Patau who was martyred for his faith. He wrote in the late third century um, when referencing Revelation 15.1. Here's what Revelation 15.1 says. And I saw another great and wonderful sign, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is completed the indignation of God or the wrath of God. He goes on to say, for the wrath of God always strikes the obstinate people with seven plagues. That is perfectly as it said in Leviticus. And these shall be in the last time when the church shall have gone out of the midst, midst. Victorinus and many like him. This is of the early church in the third century. They assume that the church will not be present during the bold judgments. They will not be there when God pours out his wrath on the earth. Now things went really dark for the church uh, for centuries. Um, but in the 1600s, the Bible, because the Catholic church like took the Bible away and you could only understand, you could, they didn't believe the commoner could understand the Bible, so you had to listen to priests and other people to teach you. But in the 1600s, as the average person began to get access to the Bibles, the church actually began to return to a literal interpretation of the scriptures as they read it for themselves, and then men, uh, and they began to return to a pre-tribulational view of the rapture. Men like, and you're gonna, re, you're gonna understand or, or recognize some of these names, uh, John Darby, C.I. Schofield, anybody have a Schofield Bible? Harry Ironside, uh, Charles Ryrie, anybody have a Ryrie study Bible at home? Okay, these, you have all of them. You have all the Bibles at home. Um, these men brought back a pre-tribulational view of the rapture. And so all the way back to the beginning of the, of the early church, you could find teachings of the pre-tribulational view. All right, number three, um, we believe in a pre-tribulational view because of our interpretation of what's called the restrainer or the one who is holding back evil. Now, hang with me on this. It's gonna take some brain power, okay? And we're gonna work on a couple of different passages. But we believe, in fact, if you wanna turn to um, 2 Thessalonians chapter two right now, you can, and we're gonna, we're gonna read this together. But we believe, based on 2 Thessalonians chapter two, that the restrainer, the one who holds back all of wickedness on the earth, which we believe to be the Holy Spirit, will leave the earth before the Antichrist will be established. Let's look at it together. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. For the man of lawlessness, that's, the, that's speaking of the Antichrist, is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back, your Bible might interpret that as the restrainer, the one who is holding it back is taken out of the way. So what, what this teaching here is that the, the Antichrist cannot rise until something that is hold, or someone who is holding back the evil in the world is taken out of the way, then the Antichrist will be revealed. Right now it's being kept secret. We believe the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. Verse eight, then the man of lawlessness, once the restrainer is taken away, the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. But the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. 
So you understand, right, that this is what we believe, the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has to be taken out of the way, and then the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will rise and begin the tribulation period. Now hold on to that thought for a minute. We also believe, based on Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, that a covenant with Israel has got to be set up by the Antichrist at the beginning of the prophetic week, the beginning of the tribulation period. Okay? Look at it on the screen, Daniel 9, 27. The ruler, which is the Antichrist, will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven. But after half this time, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. What we know from other scripture passages, that that one set of seven is seven years. And so this is the beginning. At the beginning of the tribulation period, the Antichrist is gonna sign a peace treaty with Israel and what's called the many. And then at the midpoint, three and a half years in, he's, he's actually gonna break that treaty. And it says, as a climax to his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration, that's in the temple, until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. All that means is that at the midpoint, he's going to set up some kind of image, some believe of himself, this is the Antichrist, and the false prophet's going to deceive everybody and, to, and demand that everybody worship this image in the temple, which is going to bring a defiling image to the temple. And then he's going to institute the mark of the beast and everything's gonna break loose at that point. Okay, you got those two things, those two events? The restrainer has to be taken away, and as soon as he does, then the Antichrist will rise. According to these teachings, the events have to take place in that order. The restrainers removed, I believe, accomplished by the rapture of the church. According to Jesus in John 16, 8, the role of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world, not just believers, to convict the world of guilt and regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Let me ask you something. How is the Holy Spirit present on the earth today? In us. How is this Holy Spirit at work on the earth today? Through us. Now, it was different before the church. The Holy Spirit poured himself out on the earth and, and worked in certain individuals to accomplish his work. But once the Pentecost came, now believers, the church of Jesus Christ, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. We become the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. If you remember Jesus' teaching, Jesus said, you're not gonna see me anymore, but you will see me. The world will not see me any longer, but they will see me because you will see me because I will be in you through the Holy Spirit, when you receive the Holy Spirit, I will be in you, and therefore the world will see me because you are in the world, and they will see me through you. So the work of the Holy Spirit happens through the believer. You know that we are supposed to be, we are the restrainers. Well, I thought you said the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. Yes. Where does the Holy Spirit live right now? We're the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. We are commanded to live our lives as salt and light in this world. We're supposed to be living in such a way that we are dispelling darkness. You are the salt of the, of the earth. You are the light of the world. Shine your light. 
as we shine our light, we are, the, re, the Holy Spirit's restraining power is holding Satan back, is holding evil from having this world be just completely covered in evil. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit's going to be taken out of the way. How do you take the Holy Spirit out of the way right now? You rapture his church. We can see from other passages that in the, in the tribulation period, the Holy Spirit will pour himself out on the earth again. It will go back to a pre-Pentecost, pre-church time of the work of the Holy Spirit. If all of that is true, what I just told you, then the rapture must precede the tribulation. Yeah, well, I don't believe you're right, Phil. Okay. But if what I just showed you and I just explained to you is true, then the rapture, there has to be a pre-tribulation rapture because the Holy Spirit, when he, he has to be removed, and we, if he removes us by rapturing his church, the man of lawlessness cannot rise until he's removed. And so that's why we believe. Are you still with me? Yes. You sure? Yes. <laughs> I feel like we need to do like a rapture drill. <laughs> you awake? You want, you want to do it? Yes. Let's do it like this. <laughs> I can't believe I'm getting ready to do this in church. You guys are gonna start it, and we're gonna do a rapture drill wave. <laughs> now, you know how to do a wave, right? You stand up, raise your hand, and sit back down. Here's what a rap, the difference between a wave and the rapture drill wave is that you put a little jump at the end of it. <laughs> All right, you re are you ready? ready? Can we do this? Yeah. In church? Yeah. All right, here we go, ready, go. Yes! Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> Don't tell the balcony that they didn't make it. You guys get to be the tribulational saints. Are you ready? You, you could just like, right when we get to the center, it can be your turn. You ready? They're not very excited about the rapture. Are you ready? All right, come on, let's go. Ready? Here we go. One, two, three. Yes, 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 yes. All right, enough of that. You got your blood running. All right, here we go. Here's our next reason. Because of our understanding of what's called the imminent return of Jesus Christ. <laughs> you guys didn't know you were gonna take like a theology course today, did you? Our understanding of the imminent return of Christ. Okay, so Jesus' teaching in the Gospels concerning the end of the age is characterized by a word called imminence. All that means is the idea that his coming can happen at any moment and that there is nothing that needs to be fulfilled in order for it to happen. 
So nothing has to be fulfilled for Jesus come, coming back and rapturing his church. It, and so there is the imminent return of Jesus Christ. It could happen right now. In other words, the rapture is a signless event. Keep that in your mind. That is critical to know. It is a signless event, and there are no prophecies yet to be fulfilled for it to occur. Here's how Jesus described it in Mark chapter 13. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard and keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. In Luke chapter 12, verse 40, he describes it like this. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It is clear that Jesus returned for his church, which we are called his bride. Keep that in your mind, too is unexpected and will come as a complete surprise. We won't know it's coming. There are no signs for it to say, hey, it's coming tomorrow, you guys, because this happened today. No signs for this, a signless event. On the other hand, Jesus' teaching of the end time, Jesus' teaching of the tribulation period and all of the signs, we've been working on those during this series, all the signs that are going to happen before his second coming assures us that the second coming of Christ to reign in glory and establish his kingdom on the earth is going to happen at the end of the seven-year tribulation, and the signs of his appearing will be evident, and you'll be able to see them. In fact, as soon as the tribulation clock starts, you'll be able to tick off. This seal's gonna happen, this trumpet's gonna happen, this bowl is gonna happen, and as soon as you see this happen, look for me, I'm coming back. So you can tick it off. You can, there are signs and there are ways that you can see. So if Christ's second coming will be easily anticipated, and yet we're told that his coming for his church will be a complete surprise, you've got to conclude that there are two appearances, and there is a prior appearance to his second coming that is distinct. I believe it's the rapture of the church. And only a pre-tribulational rapture can be truly imminent. Now, those who hold to a mid and a post would, would disagree with me on that, but I don't agree. All other rapture views can be predicted. The rapture can be predicted by looking at the calendar once the tribulation clock starts. If it's a mid-tribulational rapture, a post-tribulation rapture, you can say, okay, we're, man, get ready, you guys, because we just hit the seventh seal, or we just hit the, and you can just go on wherever you think that the rapture is going to happen. Because the rapture is imminent, which means can happen at any moment, we, the people of Jesus Christ, are not looking for signs. We're looking for Jesus. That's why Jesus said, when you see these signs begin to happen, when you see the foreshadowing of these events that will happen in the tribulation, when you see them begin to happen, stand and look up because your salvation is near. We can actually, we can't see, there is nothing, it's, it's the imminent return. Because the, the tribulation period can happen a thousand years from now. But when you see these things begin to happen, get ready. Your redemption draweth nigh. I love that language. 
Can I read you something from the prophecy prose? Because remember, the church is described as the bride of Christ. And he's going to come back for his bride and take us home. That's what we're talking about. That's what the rapture is all about. I want to read from the prophecy prose because they show us how Jesus' teaching is connected to the Jewish custom of marriage and how the disciples would have understood it in that context when he was reading to, or speaking to them in John 14, 1 to 3. So this is what they write. In John 14, 1 to 3, Jesus told his disciples he was leaving them to go prepare a place for them in his father's house. He promised them that he would one day return and take them there. Those in the upper room, he's talking about the disciples that night, this was clearly a metaphorical reference to the Jewish wedding custom of the day. That's how we, he, they would have interpreted what he was talking about. Once a man was betrothed to his wife, he returned to his father's house for a period of time during which he would construct a room or addition onto the house for the newly married couple to live in. At an appointed time set by the father, not the groom, set by the father, the groom-to-be appeared unannounced, snatching up his bride and taking her away to his father's house where the marriage would be consummated. Jesus is clearly here not speaking about the second coming at the end of the tribulation because at that time, where am I? Um, the church returns down to earth with Christ in Revelation 19. Rather, in John's passage, the bride is headed in the opposite direction as he takes her up to heaven to the Father's house. For this reason, that is imminence, the bride was always to be ready for her beloved to appear, and this is exactly what we see in the rest of the New Testament as this perpetual anticipation for the imminent rapture return of Jesus was regularly on the minds of the early church. This is precisely why we are told to look for and to hope for the appearing of Christ at the rapture, which could occur at any time. Isn't that special to think about that? The church is described as the bride of Christ. Hear me now, okay? Lean into this with me. For our loving bridegroom, Jesus Christ, to get engaged with us and then say, hey, I'm gonna go home and prepare the place and then I'm gonna come back and get you and then allow his abusive father to beat up on his bride, on his fiance for seven years before he comes back, it doesn't make any sense to me at all at the nature and heart of Jesus Christ. Why would he use beloved terms like betrothed and bridegroom and get ready and be ready, have your lamps trimmed because the bridegroom could come at any time only to say, oh, by the way, my dad's gonna beat on you for a while because of your sins. It doesn't make sense to me in the program that God has clearly laid out in the scriptures of his church that we sang all morning about. Jesus paid it all, which takes us to our last point. Our belief that God's wrath was fully satisfied. In my opinion, this is the most compelling reason to hold to a pre-tribulational view of the rapture because it goes right along with the doctrine that we find in Romans 8.1, Praise the Lord, you guys, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The wrath of God that we rightly deserve for our sin 
was fully poured onto Christ on the cross, who scripture tells us willingly drank the cup of God's wrath, the scripture says, to the dregs, which means down to the last drop. It actually describes down in the bottom of the cup where the nasty things are. You get to the bottom of the cup and go, oh, I don't want to drink that. He goes, went right in and said, no, I'm drinking it all. I'm taking every bit of the wrath of God for you. Christ drank it all and therefore satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why would God subject his church, his bride, who has been clothed in his imputed righteousness of his son to be an outpouring of his wrath on wickedness and ungodliness? It doesn't make any sense. It's not what we have been promised. The wrath described in the tribulation judgments are designed for those who will not repent, Revelation 16. But look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, get this now, not to pour out his anger on us. Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive when he returns, we can live with him forever. Here's something to think about. In the Old Testament, before God unleashed his wrath on the earth or unleashed his wrath on wickedness on the earth, he always delivered his faithful. Think of Noah and his family. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Think of Enoch. Think of Lot. It's similar to when a nation plans to go to war on its enemy. They always go to that nation and they pull their ambassadors out before they attack. We are the ambassadors of Christ. We're here on this earth representing our King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. We're representing Jesus Christ. And I believe before he comes to pour out his wrath, he's going to take his ambassadors home. He's going to rapture his bride and take his bride out of the way. That's what's supposed to happen. Please hear me on this. We're committed to the scriptures and the truth of the scriptures. And because of that, we have to acknowledge the reality of suffering for Christ. We are going to suffer. In this world, you will suffer. You will have trouble, Jesus said. And you will suffer persecution if you stand for me. But that is the persecution that comes from wickedness on the earth and wicked sinful men and women of the earth and the attack and schemes of the devil against the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus promised that if the world hated him, then we better believe it's gonna hate us too. In fact, we've spoken of this before, if we're not being opposed for our faith in some capacity, then you have to ask the question, are you really in the faith? Are you in the fight? Are you living for the Lord? Are you shining your light? But here's the distinction. You have to understand this. As Christians, because we are in this world, we're going to suffer opposition. We're gonna suffer persecution, the persecution of this age. Christians have been suffering 
opposition since Pentecost, but because we are in Christ in the world, Scripture is clear that we will never experience the wrath of God for our sin. I had a buddy of mine tell me one time, it's arrogant of you to think you're not going to pay for some of your sin. I didn't say this, but I wanted to say, well, it's ignorant of you and insulting to Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he paid on the cross for you to assume that you're gonna have to pay for some of the sin that he paid all of. It's always been, the wrath of God has always been exhausted and expended on Christ at the cross. And though we live in a world that exalts wickedness and exalts evil, and though sometimes we feel incredibly suffocated because of its consequences that are unraveling all around us, and we're seeing this especially today, hear me, you guys. We will never find ourselves on the receiving end of God's wrath that he will pour out on those who are disobedient and refuse to repent. That's the purpose of the tribulation period. We are sheltered from the wounds, by the wounds, and in the wounds of our Savior. Isaiah 53 says, he took upon himself the punishment of God. He was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. And the Lord laid on him the sins of all of us. And as a result, we are told to, in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, wait for the Son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Drink in a big dose of that truth and let it comfort your heart. So what if you're wrong, Phil? First of all, let me, let me talk about this. I've had people say to me, so what? What does it matter? I'm a pan-tribulationalist. It'll all pan out in the end. It matters. It matters what the scripture says on this because if it's, if it's pre-tribulational rapture, and though some will be saved in the tribulation period, it is very hard to live on this side of the tribulation and believe in the tribulation because there's gonna be a strong delusion and you will, be, you will believe the lie and you will take the mark and you will be in hell forever. If it's pre-tribulational rapture, so what, Phil? So what? That means we have a harvest. We, we have to go out in the field and win as many people to Jesus as possible because I believe we're seeing the signs of the end. We're seeing the beginning of the signs. I think we're right here close to, I believe the rapture could happen at any moment right now. And so we ought to inspire all of us and motivate every single believer to go out and tell everybody they know 
every day about Jesus. Well, aren't we supposed to do that anyway? Yes. Why? Because we, Jesus is gonna come. And it might be today. There's nothing that has to be fulfilled for him to return for his bride. And as soon as we're gone, who's gonna tell him? But what if you're wrong, Phil? And what if it's the mid-tribulational rapture? Well, let me just tell you this. If I'm wrong, I don't think I am. But if I am, we'll figure it out. Right? What's interesting is there isn't any teaching on how to live through the judgments of the tribulation. Don't you think that God, with all the teaching that he gives us on how to live in this present world, would have some specific teaching on how to live through all the judgments of the tribulation period? I think so. I think we would have some big billboard type of chapters in the Bible that say, now listen, you're gonna experience crazy, crazy, weird, miraculous, supernatural things on the earth. And this is what you're gonna have to do in order to live through that and give us some instruction on how to do that. But it ha we don't have it. But if it does happen and the rapture is mid-tribulation -tri mid or post-tribulation and we're gonna actually experience all the horrible things that are gonna fall from the sky and burn people alive and all the, the third of the, of the earth's population is going to die and all these things that are gonna happen in the tribulation, then what we will do as a church is we will hunker down and we'll figure it out. In fact, if I was a mid-tribulationalist or a post-tribulationalist, I'd be teaching all of you how to become preppers. And here's what I mean by that. We're gonna have to have food. We're gonna have to have water. We're gonna have to have all kinds of supplies, maybe ammunition and maybe we need, we're, we're gonna need a bunch of stuff because when all this goes to the toilet and whenever we have to take the mark of the beast and we don't take the mark of the beast, you can't buy any food. You can't trade any food. You can't buy gasoline. You can't travel. You can't do anything. In fact, we're gonna be hiding for our lives because they're coming to kill everybody who doesn't take the mark. Read it. So if I was a mid-tribulationalist, I'd have massive storehouses going on right now. And I'd be encouraging all of you to do that because the church, we're gonna need each other. I'm gonna need what you can save and you're gonna need what I can save and we're gonna to have to have it stored away and try to live, try to make it through the seven years until the rapture happens or the three and a half years until the rapture happens. You know, you can starve in three and a half years. Okay. No one has ever made it three and a half years without eating or drinking. All right. You Okay. Let me say this, okay? I don't pretend to know everything. And I believe what I believe because of what I have studied my whole life and what seems very clear to me in scripture. This does not have to be a dividing thing at all for us. Um, 
okay? Paul says, let's make every effort, every effort to live at peace with one another in all things. Let's stand together, and I want to encourage you with these words as we go. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. In the air. And so, we will be with the Lord forever. Amen. Amen. Encourage one another, Paul says. Encourage one another with these words. Jesus is coming back for his church. It might be today. We have a lot of work to do. Let's get after it. I hope you'll come back next Sunday, especially if you're a mid-tribulation or post-tribulation. Because we're going to talk about the great falling away next week and how sobering that is in the day that we live in today. Lord, I pray that you'll strengthen us in our hearts with these words, that our hearts will be comforted in the fact that you love us and you're coming back for us, that we are your special bride and you're going to return and take us to be with you, that where you are, we will be with you forever. Thank you for that promise. Help us to live in light of the imminent return that we will go out and we will be diligent to tell people, as many people, share the gospel with as many people as we can, Lord, today, tomorrow, the next day, until you return. In Jesus' powerful name we pray, amen. God bless you, my friends. Give somebody a big hug on your way out. Tell them that you love them. Thank you for joining us for our worship service online today. Our hope is that the worship and teaching has stirred your affections for Jesus Christ and has inspired you to love God, love others, and influence our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you made a spiritual decision today or if you just want prayer with somebody, would you click on our connection card link and there you can find the help that you need. Also, we encourage you, if you haven't already, download our church app from the App Store today so that you can connect with us in that way and the many different tools that it offers. As always, our website offers a host of opportunities and resources for you, and you can find that at fbcalcar.org. Hey, thank you again for joining us today. We'll see you right back here next week. See ya.